This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. This here is episode 166 entitled Mark's High Human Christology, chapters 7 through 8. And my name is Dustin Smith. As always, I am going to be your host. I hope that you are enjoying your Holy Week, culminating in Good Friday and the celebration of the resurrection on Sunday. Hope that this week brings you peace and joy. Coincidentally, we will be talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus within this episode. In fact, the three texts we are going to explore this week are all actually healing stories, in a manner of speaking. More on that later. It may come as a surprise to some, but Mark is able to tell us about his own Christology even within miraculous healing stories of Jesus. These particular stories are not those that people interested in Christology typically go to in order to better understand what Mark thinks about Jesus. Of course, as we have been doing as of late, we will go out of our way to find the highest Christology that we can find in Mark within probable reason. In this week's episode, we will explore Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman, who offers an act of worship to him and even calls him Lord. Next, we will examine the healing of the blind man, which happens to be a peculiar two-stage format. Lastly, we will look at Peter's confession of Jesus' messianic role and ask if this is saying enough or if Mark has more to reveal about his Christology. How do these three miracle stories reveal the height of Mark's Christological understanding of Jesus? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is the encounter with the Syrophoenician woman. I'll be reading out of Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. 
And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. It's Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. So, this particular passage could be read to indicate that Mark has a very, very high Christology. We could see this on three particular points. First, we can see that this Greek woman comes to Jesus and immediately falls down at his feet, which is a sign of worship. Second, she calls Jesus Lord, the Greek noun Kyrios. Third, Jesus says that the children should be satisfied first. And it's not fair to give the bread of the children to the little dogs. But we should be asking this question if Mark is wanting us to read between the lines and conclude that Jesus, the one who is worshipped and is called Lord, is he describing the children as his own children? And if they are the children of Jesus, does that make Jesus the Lord God? Now, there are some other clues that suggest that Mark is not really interested in portraying Jesus as God within this passage, but rather Mark wants to depict Jesus as a human being. So consider these particular points. First, the story begins with Jesus entering a house in Tyre, not wanting anyone to know. But, as the Greek says, he was, quote, not able to escape notice, end quote. Jesus was unable to escape the notice of the people. And this presents Jesus in a limited fashion. He has a limited human condition. Jesus is not able to do some things. That's the beginning of the story. The second thing I would point out is the way that the story concludes. And it concludes in a way which, on the surface, seems to be suggesting that the woman actually changed Jesus' mind. Jesus says that a temporary priority should be given to the children, but the woman responds with this clever comeback, noting how the little dogs do in fact get to share in the food crumbs that were initially given to the children. And verse 29 makes it clear that because of this answer, Jesus has exercised the demon from the woman's daughter. The text says specifically, quote, because of this answer, end quote. And the wording of this suggests to me, at least, that the woman's response made Jesus change his mind, resulting in the miracle occurring. So these two points, the beginning of the story and the end of the story, suggest that Jesus is naturally human. But let's return to our initial three points of consideration. Worship, the declaration of lordship, and the reference to the children. So the Syrophoenician woman immediately heard about Jesus, 
and she came and bowed down at his feet. She hasn't heard him teach. She hasn't seen him perform any miracles. We're wondering, why does she respond this way to someone that she's really never met before? Now, perhaps the fame of Jesus was already spreading into Tyre. Mark has already told us back in chapter 3 and verse 8 that a great number of people from all around, but including the vicinity of Tyre, heard what Jesus was doing. Perhaps this woman heard the scuttlebug and learned, to her surprise, that Jesus was here in town, here in Tyre. So, of course, she shows up to where he is staying. Now, the act of falling down at Jesus' feet certainly regards Jesus as an object of worship. This is not the typical verb used for worship, proskuneo. It's a different verb, a rare verb, which is prospipto. And it's falling down, and typically this verb is used with falling down at the feet of somebody. And it refers to the gesture that is rightly given to human objects by the subjects. I want you to see how this particular verb, prospipto, is used within the Bible. So in Acts chapter 16, verse 29, the jailer fell down at the feet of Paul and Silas using the same verb. So the objects of this act of worship, I guess you could say, would be Paul and Silas. Esther, in the Old Testament, fell down at the feet of the human king in Esther chapter 8 and verse 3. The verb appears in the Septuagint version of Esther 8 verse 3. In the book of Exodus, Zipporah fell down at the feet of Moses in Exodus 4 verse 25. You only find this verb in the Septuagint version of Exodus 4.25. But do you know who is never the object of falling down at the feet, where particularly the verb prospipto is used? Answer, God. God is never the object of someone falling down and worshiping of the feet. No one in Scripture, neither in the Septuagint nor in the New Testament, falls down at the feet of God in order to give him worship. That's very interesting. So, there would be no conceivable way that the original readers of Mark could conclude that an act of prostrating that we can see here with the Syrophoenician woman would be meant to regard Jesus as the true God, as Yahweh. There are just no other examples that would give us that particular impression. So it seems that this act of falling down at the feet of Jesus is simply regarding him as a highly qualified and authorized individual. Now the response of the woman calls Jesus Kyrios, the Greek noun for Lord. And it is the response of the woman involving this particular confession that actually led to the healing of her daughter. 
Now, as you recall, calling someone Lord, or the Greek noun kurios, does not automatically mean that they are referring to this person as the Lord God. Kurios was in regular everyday use during the Greco-Roman period. It was so common. Let me give you some examples of how common this particular language was used. Slaves called their masters Lord, but these slaves did not think that their human master was Yahweh. And if you remember, one-third of the Greco-Roman world consisted of slaves. So this was very common. Soldiers called their commanders Lord. For example, this see Luke chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. Surely these soldiers did not think that their ranking officer was the Lord God. And even commoners would call aristocrats Lord. And surely these commoners did not regard these upper-class aristocrats as God in the flesh. So the point is that referring to someone as Kyrios, as Lord, as Sir, as Master, was extremely common within the Greco-Roman world. In fact, it is fair to say that when most people in the Greco-Roman world called someone else Kyrios, they did not have in mind that that particular Kyrios was the Lord God. So that should not be the default when we read these passages within the New Testament. We should not automatically assume that Kyrios refers to Yahweh. It might be. It is possible. But that should not be our default interpretation. Now Mark is very soon going to tell his readers explicitly what it means to call Jesus Lord. Because Jesus is going to quote Psalm 110, verse 1, in Mark chapter 12, verse 36. And Jesus cites this psalm, Psalm 101, to indicate that Yahweh, the Lord God, speaks to someone else and calls that person my Lord. So Yahweh speaks to my Lord. And Jesus regards himself as the second person here, distinct from Yahweh. So Mark calls Jesus Lord, yes, but in a way that distinguishes Jesus from Yahweh. So the Lord Jesus is a high-ranking person, empowered and authorized by Yahweh, as we can see in Psalm 110, verse 1. So in short, it is likely that the Syrophoenician woman called Jesus Lord to address him as a human superior, someone worthy to be the object of worship with her act of falling down at his feet. Now, Jesus regards the children of Israel as, quote, children. Should we read this as Jesus regarding them as his children? making himself out to be God. Is this a subtle point that Mark is making? Does Mark expect for us to read between the lines and assume that Jesus is making himself out to be God here? 
Now I find this particular reading to be really strained. Jesus doesn't say that they are his children or his sons and daughters. And if we recall, Mark opens his gospel by clearly identifying Jesus as the Son of God, the Messianic agent of God. So even Jesus himself is one of God's children. Moreover, Mark has depicted Jesus as the giver of the bread to the children in the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And in that story, Jesus is certainly not being depicted as God. So the story of the healing of the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman is an interesting story. But it is not a story, it seems, where Mark is suddenly going to drop a bomb on his readers to suggest that Jesus is actually Yahweh. Let's move to our second point, point number two, which is the two-stage restoration of the blind man's sight. I'm reading out of Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees, walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26. Now, depending on when the Gospel of Mark was written, there was another person who was hailed for his ability to heal blind men, specifically with his spittle. And that person was the Emperor Vespasian. And if Mark was written in the late 60s, then Vespasian was a Roman general. And if Mark was written in the year 70, or a little bit after, then Vespasian had ascended to the throne as emperor. We have two particular stories by Latin writers, by Suetonius and by the historian Tacitus, which depict Vespasian as someone who did a very similar story. Vespasian would use his spit to heal a well-known blind person. But in the story, Vespasian is reluctant to do so. He doesn't believe that he has enough faith to do it, but the people encouraged him to do it, they implored him to do it, they pressured him to do it, and he reluctantly did it, and the blind man was healed. We could see this in Suetonius's account of Vespasian, chapter 7, paragraphs 2 through 3, and also in the Histories of Tacitus, book 4, paragraph 81. So Mark would be portraying Jesus in a manner that rivaled the miraculous claims of the Roman emperor. 
a lot of readers of this particular passage where Jesus heals this blind man with his spit aren't quite sure what to do with this story. Why would Jesus heal this person in this particular manner? It seems very odd. It seems very out of place. But it seems that Mark is wanting you to read this in light of another famous person who did a very similar story to demonstrate that Jesus' ability to do so is much greater. The kingdom of God that Jesus is inaugurating with his ministry and specifically with his miracles is much greater than the kingdom of Rome that was being ushered in through the military might and healing of Vespasian. So as I entitled this particular point, this is a two-stage restoration. All the commentaries on the Gospel of Mark rightly note that this is a two-stage healing, and it's followed by a two-stage Christology involving the confession of Peter the Apostle. And so this is really important to see that Mark has placed these two stories side by side, back to back, and both of them involve two stages within the narrative. Now, in the healing of the blind man, the very first stage has Jesus spinning on his eyes, laying his hands on him, but the response is just simply, I see men, I see them like trees walking around. There's only a partial healing at that point. There needs to be a further stage of healing. So Jesus again laid his hands on his eyes and the man's sight was restored. It's a two-stage healing. But when you see this compared to the following account, where there is a two-stage confession by Peter. In the first stage, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ. But then, Jesus reveals that he is to be betrayed, killed, and that he would rise again on the third day, resulting in Peter rebuking Jesus for this second stage of Christological development. So something we need to consider that both of these stories are two stage stories. They have two stages in it to where the first stage is not enough. The initial stage of the healing of the blind man was not enough. And the initial confession of Peter, arguably, is also not enough. Now, why would Mark want to give a two-stage healing story? Typically, Jesus is able to heal with a single statement or with a single action. Now, sometimes there's a combination, an action with a statement, but it only takes one attempt. But in this particular story, it takes Jesus two tries. There's some sort of limitation that's going on. And in the context, we have the hearts of the Pharisees that are lacking faith. Chapter 8, verses 11 through 13. And then the followers of Jesus are also lacking faith. Chapter 8, verses 14 through 21. And of course, this anticipates Peter himself, who lacks understanding on what it means to be God's Christ. So the question can be posed, if only one stage of the two-stage healing is not enough, and if the two-stage healing of the blind man is related in the narrative to the two-stage Christology, 
then is the first stage of Christology as confessed by Peter insufficient. The point is that it took Jesus two tries to get the healing accomplished. So would that assume that the confession of Peter requires two attempts in order to bring about the fullness of what needs to be understood? It would seem that simply regarding Jesus as the Christ, as with the first stage of Peter's confession, is not enough. It is extremely important to note that there was not a universal expectation regarding the Messiah within Second Temple Judaism. There were a variety of Messianic expectations. So it is true that Jesus, according to Mark, is the Christ. But Mark's narrative requires a second stage that elaborates on what sort of Christ Jesus saw himself as. So readers cannot simply cite Mark chapter 8, verse 29, where Peter confesses that you are the Christ, or the popular parallel in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, as if those passages are the be-all and end-all of Christology. They aren't. It is only the first part of a two-stage narrative. And Peter needed the healing just as much as the blind man needed healing. I would actually go so far as to say that both of these stories are two-stage healing stories. The blind man needed to be healed, and so Peter also needed to be healed of his limited understanding of what the Messiah meant. So let's look at how Jesus who just opened the eyes of the blind man, opens the eyes of Peter. This moves us to our third and final point. Point number three, Jesus rebukes Peter's Christology. Mark chapter 8, let's start in verse 27. Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. That's Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 33. Okay, so before we look at the two-stage Christology, let's consider how Jesus was perceived by the outsiders. He was regarded as John the Baptist, 
as Elijah or as one of the prophets. Now, all three of these categories fall under the umbrella of prophetic figures. From an outsider looking in, Jesus looked like a prophetic person. Nobody thought that he was a heavenly angel or some sort of archangel. No one thought that he was God in the flesh or the second member of the Trinity. And it is true that Jesus was a prophet because Jesus himself openly admitted that he was a prophet earlier in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. But Mark began his gospel by identifying Jesus as the Son of God. So we know that Jesus is not a mere prophet. Calling Jesus a prophet is not enough. So Peter offers the first of a two-stage Christology. Peter answered and said that Jesus is the Christ. Mark 8, verse 29. And so Jesus is the anointed king, the Christ, who is the authorized agent of God's kingdom. We've known that Jesus was anointed as the Christ ever since his baptism, where the voice from heaven hailed Jesus as the Son of God. Just as Mark told us from the opening verse of his gospel, nothing new here. We just have the acknowledgement of it by the disciples of Jesus. But, as we know from the two-stage healing story that preceded this confession, the first stage is not enough. The second stage reveals the sort of Messiah that Mark had in mind for Jesus. Namely, that Jesus would function as the anointed king by being rejected, killed, and raised from the dead. So Jesus won't be a warrior messiah that violently revolts against Rome. Neither will Jesus be a priestly messiah, as expected by the Qumran Jews who left us the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jesus will defeat evil by paradoxically dying. Jesus will win by losing. He will conquer by being conquered. It is this definition of Christ that Mark wishes to impress upon his readers. The second stage of the two-stage Christology involves the death of Jesus, whom he specifically calls the Son of Man, by the way. Remember, the Son of Man is the authorized human being. In doing so, Mark regards the anointed king, the Christ, as the authorized human son of man. So the Christ is a authorized member of the human race. The Christ is not, according to Jesus, a heavenly angel, an archangel, or even Yahweh himself. The Christ is a human being. Now, once Jesus reveals this second stage of the two-stage healing that Peter needed, Peter rebukes Jesus, using the same verb used throughout Mark to indicate the rebuking of demons. Peter is harsh towards Jesus, which is why 
this second stage is part of the healing that Peter needed. So when Jesus replies, he states that Peter is setting his mind on the interest of man, not on the interest of God. So here's a question we could ask. Is Jesus here claiming to be God, since he is the one who revealed these things to Peter? In other words, is Mark subtly saying that Peter should be setting his interest on God's interest, i.e., Jesus' interest? I think that this is a pretty big stretch. The things of God refer to the divine necessity for Christ to die, while the things of men refer to the expectations of the Messiah, where he would conquer by shedding the blood of his enemies. Jesus on the side of God's plans, where Peter is on the side of the plans of men. Jesus could hardly be inferring that the things of God prove that Jesus is that very God, since Jesus just called himself the Son of Man, a human being, who is to die. God, as we all know, cannot die because God is immortal. But Jesus had to die, meaning he was mortal, like all humans who are susceptible to death. So it seems highly unlikely, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, that Jesus is subtly claiming to be God by saying that he is on the side of the things of God, while Peter is on the side of the things of man. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the Gospel of Mark is filled with many interesting stories that show how it is that God's reign is breaking into this age in and through the ministry of Jesus. Within the healing stories, where the restoration of the kingdom is previewed on a very personal level, we can come to better understand Mark's own Christology. We first noted that Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman revealed that Jesus is a high-ranking person who received worship and was addressed in a way that acknowledges him as a superior. The narrative actually depicted Jesus with very human qualities. Jesus was unable to escape the notice of the locals entire, and he seemingly had his mind changed by the faithful petition of the woman. Second, we observe that Mark placed two stories side by side, each involving a two-stage interaction between Jesus and a dialogue partner. Within these two-stage interactions, it is clear that the first stage, which principally involves an answer sought by Jesus, is not a complete answer. Only the second part of the two-stage interaction gives the complete picture. The first of these two stories involves the healing of a blind man, which Mark seems to describe in ways that subvert a remarkably similar healing story involving Vespasian, the Roman emperor. Lastly, 
we looked at the confession of Peter, which Mark frames as another two-stage miracle story. Peter is correct in his confession that Jesus is the Christ, that is, God's anointed king. However, this is only the first of a two-stage story, and Jesus seeks to unpack what sort of Messiah he regards himself. Instead of being a conquering warrior Messiah or priestly Messiah, he defines his role as one who is to be rejected, killed, and later risen from the dead. Peter strongly disagrees, resulting in a rebuke from Jesus that acts as a further healing in a two-stage healing. Mark wants to stress upon his readers that merely claiming Jesus to be the Christ is not far enough. For the way in which Jesus inaugurates God's rule is by suffering and dying. I'm fascinated by the fact that the two parts to Mark's Christology involve anointed kingship and a shameful death, not full divinity and full humanity. Therefore, the Gospel of Mark continues to exhibit a high Christology, but it is a high human Christology, portraying Jesus as the highly authorized agent of the one true God. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. We'll have more to talk about within the Gospel of Mark in our upcoming episodes. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. Consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes so that our podcast will appear in the searches of more people looking for these truths. If you'd like to offer a donation, you may check out the episode's description for a PayPal link. Special thanks to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams, for his fine work each and every week. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.